Getting engaged is a moment worth cherishing. A one-of-a-kind ring that you design at Blue Nile can help your love sparkle. Just choose your diamond and setting. When you've found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Finding the right engagement ring can be nerve-wracking. At Blue Nile, you'll have the expert guidance needed and a diamond guarantee that ensures you're getting the highest quality at the best price. Cherish all of life's moments and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. From the center of the hockey universe, this is the Off the Post podcast. Welcome to another episode of Off the Post. I'm your host, John Mattis. Uh, today, sitting across from me is Matt Kane of Hockey Graphs. He is uh, being generous with his time and uh, going through a bit of a commute to get here, a bit of a, a transit situation with not having his pass. I, I, I'm a bit of a, a scofflaw today. I, re- I read the TTC for free. I, I don't know if they'll, they come through these podcasts looking for, looking for violators of the law, <laughs> but maybe, maybe I should hide my identity or go into hiding after this. Yeah, this is a, it's a, you being on like a in the public and recorded right now, it's risky business. It's, there, there, there's got to be a safe house somewhere where I can hide <laughs> out after this. The $3 fugitive. Uh, <laughs> All right, man. So had you, I'm having you in today uh, to talk about free agency. Um, I've already done a Winners and Losers podcast with uh, Jonathan Willis, so I don't want to really go down that road, but I want to talk about uh, the model that you created uh, for UFAs and RFAs for the 2017 agency class and just just go through you know not one by one because there's like 250 guys <laughs> but um interesting contracts uh ones that that intrigue you um that intrigue me and and just talk about why your model thought you know they should come in at this value uh and why maybe they got more or less or the right amount which i guess is a, is a win for you um and go from there so i guess off the top let's just do you mind talking about your model? What goes into it, this mathematical equation, um, and what the strengths and weaknesses are? Because I think you're you're a pretty level-headed guy. You know that when you create something, especially I believe this is your first time, you're not going to be you know killing it. There's going to be you know tweaks you want to make here and there next year. Yeah, I mean th- this is the third year I think that I, I've done a model. This is. This is certainly the best that the model has ever done. It started out as a, a really simple project to use uh, high-level stats like goals, assists, points, and I think shorthanded time on ice to, to predict player salaries. That was about three years ago. Over the last three years, I've sort of done a bit more digging on the, the factors that influence uh, a player's salary. I've got better data sets, uh, better contract data, um, to make improvements to that. But at a high level, what the model will look at is a player's last three years of statistics uh, and what 
I use is basically just the general camping stats that you know you'd see on the back of a hockey card or on NHL.com. Right. It's not advanced statistics. It's like goals, assists, points, power play time, shorthanded time, hits even, or penalty minutes, uh, block shots are, are another thing that's important, handedness, uh, as well as the sort of contextual factors that we all know impact the, a player's salary, things like how old they are, whether they're a UFA or an RFA, if they're if they've actually hit free agency, if they're signing a deal before they're free agent, um, and then the last factor that uh, that really makes a difference is including their past contract history. So if you know that a guy was making six million dollars on his last deal, he's probably going to make more than a guy who's making two million dollars on his last deal, even if they have similar statistical profiles. Basically, because there's a bit more information contained in the fact that he was a higher price player. Maybe he's a good leader in the room. Uh, maybe he's not Russian, as an example. Mm-hmm. Um, that kind it of sounds racist, but it does factor. It, it does. It does. You you see a lot of um, the, these sort of leadership guys continue to get, or the traditional you know good leader right. models continue to get maybe more money than they would if they were a guy who's viewed as an enigma, someone who hasn't won a cup, someone who uh, may have a may have a, a history of not trying, for for lack of a better term. So that adds a lot, and that I think is actually one of the, one of the bigger factors in, in pushing the model to get better every year is, is getting more contract history and seeing how a player's contract history can evolve and predict their future contracts. And I guess you factored in the fact that the cap went up by a couple million. That that would probably change the baseline for things a little bit. Yeah. So the model doesn't actually try to predict an exact number for a cap hit. What it tries to do is look at what's the minimum salary in a year, what's the maximum salary in a year, and where does the player fit on that spectrum. So you'll get a lot of the um, the fourth line plugs will end up coming in near zero, which is the lower bound, which means they're a minimum salary guy. Whereas if you've got someone like Sidney Crosby, Connor McDavid, they'll come in closer to one, which is a maximum salary player. Okay. And is the the objective to uh, predict so like these aren't your opinions you're not going uh, let's see I'll pull up a guy you didn't think that you know Kevin Shattenkirk should get 6.3 you were more this is you know you put you plug in all your inputs and then it shot out Kevin Shattenkirk is worth this correct like you have no like personal uh, impact aside from putting in uh, the objective, I guess, uh, parameters. Yeah, so the, the model isn't supposed to predict how good a player is going to be, whether they're actually going to be worth their contract and wins or not. Uh, I don't go in and, and change things after the fact. What it looks at is what have players who were statistically similar in the past three years, uh, what have they received as a contract? So the, the most obvious example is Chris Russell, who got $4 million. I think my model had him predicted at somewhere around $4.5 million. I would never pay Chris Russell $4.5 million. I don't think anyone should pay him even $4 million. But players who are similar to him, players who have played, you know, relatively big minutes, who, you know, um, have the sort of hits, block, shot profile that, that he would, have gotten deals similar to that. So he's older he's a defenseman who's hitting uh who's actually become a ufa at around age 30 and those players get a lot of money whether they're actually going to earn that on their contract or not and now we're at the point in the offseason where there's slim pickings on the ufa market there's yermi auger uh, thomas vanek 
Cody Franz, and those are sort of, I guess, if you want to call them big names. That, that's that's at the point. That's the point we're at. Um, a couple of big RFA's are left, um, but they're also starting to sign the real late ones, like Kelvin DeHaan. We're recording this on Wednesday morning. He signed about an hour ago. At least uh, that's when the information came out. So he went for only one year at three point three. So I'd like to start with him in terms of uh, you know how your model saw it. There was. A report from Elliot Freeman, uh, I believe around a week ago, saying the two sides were very far apart. Uh, at one point, it was $5 million that the player went in with, and team wanted $1.9, which is kind of insulting, to be honest, because <laughs> DeHaan's like a decent player. I mean, he's not... I think he's more of a second pair than a third pair guy, and third pair is is probably closer to the $1.9. Um, and your model had it at 3.6. So it comes in at 3.3. Do you consider that, like... Okay, that that makes sense. I think it's probably a fair value. I think the the interesting thing is that if you start to look through the predictions, you can kind of start to see the model group players into buckets in terms of what sort of term they're going to get. So you'll see the guys who are predicted at very high dollar values are also expected to get a lot of term, uh, or you see you know young RFAs who end up in these let's say four million dollar range like Dahan are usually expected to get sort of the bridge, the three- to four-year deals. Dahan coming in at one year, obviously the, the arbitration, uh, the imminence of the arbitration hearing makes a difference here. Um, but it's curious because those guys around 3.6 are usually your guys who are getting the bridge deals for longer than one year. And I'm, I'm not certain when Dahan is hitting uh, his, uh, his UFA class. He's 26. So so he's close to it now. Yeah. So that... that potentially may make a little bit more sense, but the term, uh, at least from the Islanders' point of view, doesn't make a ton of sense to me if they're coming in with a 1.9 ask. You have to figure that in arbitration, at the very least, you're, you're ending up in close to the same place. So if you're, if you're going to do a one-year deal, maybe get the dollar value down a bit. Perhaps um, if, you're, if you're not going to arbitration, you look for a bit more term on it to, to keep him, and if you need to uh, move him along, I, you know, I guess the the thing hiding in all this for the Islanders is John Tavares' upcoming extension. And do you want to commit to a longer term on a player when you know you're going to need cap space down the line to re-sign Tavares and then the pieces that you put around him? I guess that's the the underlying theme with, with any contract is the context of it all. Because not only do these teams and agents and player meet and they have their own relationships and that affects the negotiations. If I know for a fact when a GM knows an agent and they have you know worked together well before, it's a casual environment. It's sort of, hey, here's our ask, here's your ask. Let's, you know, let's meet in the middle. And maybe maybe the player gets 50,000 more than he normally would, which seems like nothing, but there's that sort of kind of buddy-buddy uh, relationship in some senses. And obviously there's the reverse where some agents have pissed off GMs and they're sort of a black sheep um, and that doesn't help negotiations. So there's that and then there's also the team and how they've fared in, in signings before. If they have some albatross contracts, if they want to offer a guy a decent number, they just can't, maybe they just can't, maybe they just don't have that room. So I feel like when signings are made, a lot of fans just look at it in a vacuum and I think that's dangerous. Um, I mean, in a perfect world, every contract would make sense. Every contract would uh, would, would have more thumbs up than thumbs down, but it's just so difficult. Like, I, I don't envy GMs who have to make this work, have to make everyone happy, 
Um, and, you know, on the other side, if, if you're an agent representing a player and you got to go back to them saying, hey, they're offering you something, you know, way below what we think you're worth, but we don't have much negotiating power, then it's going to operate. Like, you look at Sam Bennett in Calgary, who hasn't signed. He hasn't had the greatest start to his uh, his professional career, came in highly touted. You know, how, how is that, you know, push and pull going? Because I think the Flames probably have... Uh, a few contracts that have been signed across the league that they can point to and go, you're comparable to this guy. That's what you're getting. Yeah, I, I think that's that's one area where, at least for building a model to predict this sort of thing, you're never going to be able to get something that's super accurate because of the dynamics where you've got, you know, you can't just throw in a GM factor because you'll end up, you know, wildly guessing over or under yeah. when, when someone gets smart or when someone changes uh, and you don't really have enough sample. You can't necessarily look at how much open cap space they have because you could do something where where they go and they move a player like the Capitals did when they moved to Marcus Johansson. Uh, so it's difficult to know, I guess, what the next shoe to drop will be when you start to model some of these things. One of the, one of the factors that I think um, could be interesting to start to play with that I think might make a difference is how far into free agency do you get before you sign the deals? Because you have a lot of money flying around on July 1st, and yeah. then it sort of starts to die down. If you're not one of the marquee guys who gets his deal done, then the money in the league can start to dry up. And if you're waiting until into August to get that deal, you start to lose a lot of uh, leverage because not everyone can say, you know, I'm going to go over to Europe and, and get the same deal that I'm going to get here. Not everyone can say, I'm even going to leave. If you're an RFA, um, not many teams, I think, are going to take a shot on let's say, an offer sheet when you're in the middle of August because their rosters are filled out. They, they haven't taken the chance to leave a spot open for a marquee player. Speaking of offer sheets, uh, Ryan Johansson didn't get offer sheeted. I don't know if that's a verb. Uh, <laughs> so he went for eight over eight, or I guess eight times eight, uh, 64 million. Young guy, no one's going to argue that he's not a very good NHL player. But I think the, the consensus is that Nashville overpaid and they probably had their hands tied because you look around their roster and aside from Philip Forsberg, Kevin Fiala, uh, Victor Arvidsson, you know, Ryan Johansson is part of, of the real structure up front. And I, I, I'm, I'm going to assume that the agent in the room had, had the, all the leverage in the world. And then here we are, you know, this guy's an $8 million player now, and you look at it, you know, Mark Shifley is making 6.125 or something, and I think Shifley's a better player, like, and they're comparable ages, it's, if there was an overpay this summer, that's one of them, but, you know, it's justifiable, I'd say, from a Predators perspective, especially because David Poyle has done so well with contracts in the past that he can kind of have this, you know, this, this overpay and go, ah, whatever. Yeah, it's, it's definitely the, the value if you're a GM and having done well is that you can every now and then make one deal where you go a little bit over, particularly if it's for a marquee player. I think it, this is anecdotal and, and I don't have a lot of data to back this up, but yeah. it seems at least like the top level guys are getting more money this offseason. You look at uh, Genny Kuznetsov, who obviously had the, the threat to just go back to Russia and play for two years. That was a very interesting signing. Yeah, he, he was another guy who, who I think, I don't want to call him an overpay because I think he's a fantastic yeah. player, but he's also, what he came in, I think, with $2.5 over what my model had predicted him at. So 
he was predicted roughly in the same range as, as Johansson. They both uh, came in obviously well above, and I think perhaps the the you know factor that's that's hidden in the in the background here is that it seems to be more or less a given now that Leon Dreisaitl is going to get yeah. $9 million, which would be, I guess, the biggest overpay of the offseason from my point of view. But, you know, if agents are out there saying, you know, we know that Dreisaitl is going to get $9 million, how do you how do you counter with, well, we only think you should make 65 or $6 million a year? Um, because, you know, that looming threat of the offer sheet, whether, whether real or not, is, is still got to at least be in some GM's minds. Yeah, the, the timing of Johansson was uh, was intriguing because there was talk. I mean, maybe, uh, you know, it's it's some, me as someone on Twitter getting caught up in, in all the offer sheet talk that happens in the end of, at the end of July. But I wonder if, if you know, when people start bringing that up and when influential people are writing about it and when agents are leaking things, if, if all of a sudden... Oil goes, you know what, let's just get this done, let's get this over with. I don't care if I, we pay him a million more or whatever, and they just sort of swallow that. I, I wonder how much that plays into it. And also, this is more of a Kuznetsov thing. I feel like uh, Washington sort of, they had all these steps towards getting, you know, signing him, getting rid of guys, uh, you know, not signing this guy, letting Nashmet go. That Kuznetsov was like, well, clearly you, you want me want me badly so show me the money like I feel like that was part of it and like you mentioned the KHL threat so he really got paid and you know he's a great player I I think very highly of Kuznetsov and he's going to be their next sort of Ovechkin in terms of the cornerstone of the franchise so again I think it's justifiable I don't think they're bad contract but when you look around the league and see a bunch of bargains or very fair deals those guys stick out yeah, there, there are players who look overpaid now, but who in three years looking back, if the if the same trend towards paying the stars the most and then, you know, just throwing the money at the at the bottom half of the lineup or the bottom, I guess, three quarters of the lineup yeah. continues, they may not look as overpaid simply because they're the first people who started on this trend, who who were the first movers who were I guess the lucky ones to start getting <laughs> yeah. start getting paid when people in the past haven't necessarily been paid the same for the same level of performance. What did you think of uh, Nino Niederreiter's deal? Because he's a guy who didn't get much ice time last year, but he's scoring twenty goals a year. Very good rate stats. Good possession player. Good goals for player. Like uh, he checks all the the fancy stat boxes, and you know he's a he's a big guy, which old school people like. He can skate. Like, there's a lot of potential there, but some people were thinking, ah, I don't know about that contract. I mean, he's he came in, I think, relatively close to, to what my model had predicted. I think he was within, let's say, a few hundred. Actually, no. Am I looking at the... Yeah, I have the list here. He is the closest that my model predicted. So it was a fair deal based on his past performance. I, I think that, you know, he's not the, the brand name player that has the you know the the multiple 30 goal seasons but he is a guy who has contributed consistently enough that he's someone that you want to make sure that you lock up and you 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 get him what at what I think is a fair price I think you know given that they still at the time at least had to resign Gremlin they didn't go overboard they they probably stuck to the fact that 
them, I think, a little bit um, in making sure that those two deals uh, got done at, at pretty reasonable rates. I think it, even if you think it's an overpay, it's not a crippling yeah. overpay in the sense that you can still build around him. You've got Granlin for another three years on a, on another reasonable deal. Um, I think ideally they probably would have liked to have had him for longer, but probably recognize the reality of the situation, which is they're going to need um, more money uh, in the future to, to keep the core of their team together, especially with, uh, what is it, Ryan Cedars under contract to, oh God. to the end of time, yeah, I think. That yeah. Zach Parise, who yeah. has tailed off as an NHLer. He still obviously can play in the league, but he's not nearly worth his contract. That's probably an underratedly bad contract. Yeah. It's, not talked about enough. It's it's one that they they've managed to sort of squirm around yeah. and and how they got out of their their expansion uh, uh, their potential expansion problems is, is beyond me but the fact that they 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 have managed to to maintain the core of their team in, in spite of those two like giant obstacles uh, sitting on sitting at the top of their their roster is is pretty impressive but you know down the line they're they're probably one of those teams that that knows that. With those anchors on their on their on their cap, they're going to have to make a run at it in the next few years. And keeping the core of what was it? What was a good team last year together is, is probably a priority for them. Yeah, I think I think they have a lot in them for next year. And with with the Niederreiter contract, we must give we must give your uh, model props. It was only six thousand off, which is like crazy considering even a million off isn't like a complete miss. You know what I mean? Six thousand is. You almost got it right on. Yeah, that that was I I, I don't want to call it the a good one. It was a very lucky one at the very least. But but it, it's you know they're I'm generally happy if it comes in within half a million dollars on, on bigger deals like that. So to come in that close, I'll, I'll I'll take that, or the model will take it. Now I have a little section in my in my prep here that is underlined with got to talk about. There's these three or four or five people, veteran players who. I don't know. Uh, got in, uh, intriguing contracts. Uh, Joe Thornton, eight million, and the model thought four point nine. That's obviously a massive difference, and I probably side closer to the model, given he's a fifty point guy now. He's thirty eight. He's had injuries, but then you go, you can kind of justify it a bit by going, oh, it's one year, and they lost Marlowe. You know, it's like, you know, he's literally the best player in their history. Okay, or or know top three if you want to include Marlow and other guys but what did you think of, of Thornton going at eight million that that seemed a little desperate to me I I don't necessarily know that Thornton has let's say a seven million dollar offer sitting out there from any other club maybe he did and maybe this is what they needed to do to keep him around I certainly don't think he's going to that his history or at least his history for his age uh suggests that he's going to offer eight million dollars in value um, but if you're the Sharks, I mean, what what else are you going to do to tell your fan base that you're you're still in it, that you're not rebuilding? When they, realistically, they've still got um, a few guys who are are forming the core of their team, who also aren't young guys like Joe Pavelski, uh, who can help you still compete uh, in the next year. They haven't come as close as they did last year, or years ago yeah with going to the final going to the final i think they they probably pretty rightly view 
this is potentially the last year of their window, although I, I feel like that's being said for the last five years. Yeah, hopefully they're not delusional about that, because even Logan Couture, who you think as, oh, he's, you know, he's the guy that they're going to hand the baton to, he's not even young anymore. I think he's 25 or so, off the top of my head. And you look at their prospect pool and their young core, uh, yeah, they got to they gotta either quote-unquote go for it this year and maybe if they're in contention at the deadline just completely all chips in or mid-season they go this isn't what we thought it was let's ride out Joe Thornton's last uh, half of the season here and start rebuilding well I think the the trouble for them is that you know as a front office they've been together for for a very long time now and to uh, convince ownership that it's time to sort of blow everything up it's hard to say that you should be the people in charge of this rebuild when you know you, you I don't want to say that they have no you know prospect pool to draw and that they won't be able to do sort of the, the rapid rebuild that other clubs have done but at the same time they they don't have that obvious emerging yeah. talent which is fair enough you've been drafting at the end of the draft for the last few years so if you're um, if you're going in and you're asking your ownership to support you what's to stop them from saying you know well why don't we just bring in someone else some a new face so you kind of are incentivized to convince people that your window is still open and, and squeeze and, as much out of this yeah. core as you can and then at the very last moment pull the shoot <laughs> yeah exactly if things aren't going your way at the trade deadline i mean you at least have the cap space to eat the rest of that uh, Thornton deal and maybe move him for uh, assets if he's if he's still performing at the level that he has over the past few years. Um, but it's definitely a deal that you know, in the absence of any information as to as to what he was getting from other people, is is definitely a head scratcher for me. What do you think of uh, Scott Hartnell going for one million, uh, resigning with Nashville? That was the, this again. I don't want to call it a trend because it's more anecdotal than anything. But the the like older player either off a of buyout or, or coming off of maybe a down year taking the like Dan Girardi off a of buyout somehow gets a decent deal I didn't understand Dan, Dan, Dan Girardi gets three Scott Hartnell uh, deals um, that that sort of older player coming off the coming off of a buyout or, or a down year taking the the I don't want to say it's not the league minimum but basically probably the minimum they would take to continue to play hockey yeah. um, to try and win it is it's one of the things that at least anecdotally feels like is happening more often uh, these days. It was Patrick Sharp as well, Brian Campbell, um, to name a few. It feels like it's happening more often. It's another thing that's kind of hard to predict when it's going to happen because there's probably teams that were out there that would have offered Hartnell twice that or two and a half times that. Um, but at the same time, you know, he's he's still getting paid uh, so he can afford to, to take a lower value deal. So there, there are guys who will say, well, I can make twice what I was getting paid before because I'm getting money from both teams. Or there are guys who will say, you know, I'm, go I'm just going to take the money and try to win a cup while I still can. Uh, and you don't really know until it happens which guy is which. What do you think of Arnold as a player? Because if you look at him over his career, the first thing that comes to mind is, is grit or uh, some sort of grinding element. But he actually has decent possession numbers. Um, he contributes in more ways than I thought. And your model seemed to also like him, even though it was using counting stats. Uh, 3.9, I believe it came in at. Yeah, and the model does take into account, although I don't think it takes into account very well, that he was bought out. 
So it's, I mean, obviously the individual factors are, are playing a big issue here. I think he's going to be a great value at $1 million. I think if you look at his uh, primary points for 60 or something, he's been in the top uh, 20 or 60 over the last uh, few years. So he's a guy who, even as his role diminished, he continued to produce. Um, knowing that he doesn't have to be necessarily a top six player in Nashville will probably help. As a, as a guy down the lineup on a $1 million deal, I don't think you're going to get a lot of players of his age, players who aren't on their sort of entry level or second contracts at that money who are going to provide the, the same sort of value. What did you think of Ryan Miller, the UFA, going to Anaheim on a $2 million deal? Uh, your model thought, again, the same as Hartnell, 3.9. I'm I'm more skeptical as to why they didn't go after someone for a million. But then I looked at their cap-friendly page, the Ducks, and Gibson's making like 2.3. So I guess if you can justify it by saying, we're spending $5 million, not even, on our goalies. So what's, I don't know. I, Miller just seems like a guy who's destined to keep kind of uh, regressing and keep falling down as he, as he gets older here and he's he's 37 but I guess you also have that you want a reliable backup factor and maybe you start convincing yourself that two million isn't a big deal yeah I I didn't agree with the model's prediction of 3.9 I just simply the fact that you know he did not really steal the spotlight in Vancouver particularly in the last in uh, in the last season, like he's he's not a guy who's coming in with a lot of le- negotiating leverage. Yeah. Um, given that he's towards the end of his career, there is a bit of uncertainty there. In that, you know, there are some players who at his age would just retire, and we don't get contract information from them, so we don't get the two million dollar deal that he would have got even fed into the model. Uh, Anaheim was a curious fit for me, just because I would have thought he would have wanted a role where there would have at least, you know, if he's going to continue playing, there would have at least been a chance that he would step up and take the take the starter's role. And I don't see how that realistically happens. It feels like the Ducks at least have committed to Gibson as their starter. Um, maybe he thinks that if he performs well enough, he's a potential uh, trade target that yep. other teams can have. Um, but I, th- I thought the Ducks got a half-decent deal if he can perform as a good backup um whether he'll be that or not it, it's hard to say because Vancouver is just so, so yeah it's hard to judge so Miller's, Miller's work there yeah and I know that he wanted to stay on the west coast because I believe his wife is an actress so I'm, I'm sure that played into it and uh, that's maybe worked into uh Anaheim's favor I don't know that, that's the 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 factor I need to add yeah yeah why don't you add that is, all the, the white is his profession yeah the Chris Pronger uh Chris Pronger's wife didn't want to live in, live in Edmonton. So well, wasn't that the the best story? Like, well, I guess worst if you're if you're Pronger, that that type of information getting out. Yeah, that, that, I can't imagine that that was an easy uh, easy conversation at the dinner table <laughs> the night that news leaked uh, for Pronger having to uh, having to uh, talk to his wife about the fact that uh, her her demands her private demands got got made public like that. Yeah, I don't really remember how that happened. I think it was it was pre Twitter. If I but I mean everything Pronger seems pre-Twitter because <laughs> it just seems like he hasn't been in the league for 10 years but I would imagine someone someone got a hold of that and printed it somewhere um, what about Dan Girardi we sort of touched about it, touched on it before 
with Tampa Bay, who is arguably the savviest team in terms of the salary cap over the years. Steve Eiserman is people bow to him in terms of his <laughs> uh, his work, in terms of uh, getting guys to take hometown discounts or at least fair deals. And then he goes and gets Dan Girardi, uh, three million over two years, so so six million total. Your model thought three point three. Um, both seem high for for kind of a mediocre real like I think the Dan Girardi hate train is so is so fast and so there's so many people on it that he's probably now underrated. But still, I think he's a I think he's a third pairing defenseman and I don't I don't want to pay my third pairing pairing defenseman that much money. Yeah, that that was a really curious case because Tampa, as you said, like they got so many great deals done this year with Tyler Johnson and Andre Pallad, and they even made a, a good trade for to get Jonathan Druin out of Tampa. And then they went and did this, but they came out and they they said, you know, our internal analytics say that yeah. you know, he's he's worth every dollar of that. And part of that maybe, you know, Steve Eisman doesn't want to say, you know, I really like his block shots, like that sort of thing. Well, it's it's come to that point where optics play such a big role in justifying signings i guess it's always been like that but but now that there's more information out there and you know more fans researching it hobbyists media you kind of have to come to the conference caller where whenever you're talking to the media and, and have some sort of line about you know if, if they're if they're terrible uh, based on public analytics maybe you bring up oh our, our internal ones are great and sometimes maybe they are, and, and maybe the public is looking at it wrong. I don't know. Uh, but there's also a strong chance that they just sort of pull that out as as a backdoor, uh, trapdoor sort of reasoning. Yeah, I, I think it's probably more likely that they, their internal analytics said that he was not as bad as the public analytics said, but that doesn't really make him a... a, a Player. Yeah, the way the way you word it is important, right? If you're going, yeah. our internal analytics thinks he's good. Yeah. Define good, right? Yeah, but our internal analytics like him better than most others do. You leaves you a lot of room. Um, I think you know he's been sort of the the number two guy with the Rangers for so long, attached at the hip to Ryan McDonough that maybe he is better than perhaps we in the analytics world think. I think maybe on a third pairing role, you look at what Brooks Orpik did in Washington last right. year, where he sort of, when he didn't have to be a top four guy, he played half decently, and maybe Dan Girardi can do that. Um, but I don't necessarily know that, particularly with a guy who's already being paid by another team, that you need to go out and spend three and a half, three million dollars a season uh, to bring that type of player on. Um, especially given that I don't think Tampa had that big of a hole on the blue line to fill to begin with um they obviously they they felt differently but it'll be it'll kind of be the the interesting uh experiment to watch is to to see whether eisenman's genius plays out over the next yeah time. it's a, it's an entertaining move i'll give them that it gives us uh something to talk about in, yeah. in january in the middle of uh, the season when when this sort of the dog days of, of the 2017-18 campaign. So, yeah, I give him props for that. So there's two key remaining RFAs. I had uh, Calvin DeHaan on this list before, but he's gone now. Uh, Leon Dreisaitl and David Pasternak. Do you personally have strong feelings about either one? Uh, where do you think that they'll, they'll sign? What, 
what sort of money are they going to get? I, so I'll start with Drysido because I have a hard time seeing him not get $9 million now just because it's been that number's been thrown around for so long. But at the same time, it, it kind of feels like why isn't the deal done if that's the number that everyone seems to agree upon as the, the actual figure that he's worth. I think that that's going to be a really limiting contract for them going forward because they're going to need, even if Dreisaitl is, uh, you know, the Malkin to McDavid, or McDavid's Malkin, I guess is the correct way to put it. Okay. Yeah. Um, which I don't think he is. <laughs> um, that's a lot of money to commit to, I guess, your second best forward, particularly when you're going to need, like, you don't have anyone else signed to a reasonable long-term deal who's going to sort of play those supporting roles you're not not everyone's going to get you know phil kessel on a retained salary transaction to be your third best forward for lack of a better term who can who can anchor and turn your third line into a scoring line so i think maybe when when they sat back and they thought about do we really need to pay leon dries out on nine million dollars that sort of the epiphany came to them that they're not going to be able to fill the rest of fill out the rest of the lineup. Maybe Ryan Strome gets signed to a team-friendly contract and turns into the player that he was supposed to be and solves all the others' cap woes, but when you've gone out and you've signed Chris Russell there, adding on another, adding on Leon Dreisaitl for another, uh, for twice what Russell's making. Basically, Russell and Dreisaitl would be McDavid salary between the two of them. I don't know that it's necessarily great asset management, but could a team go out and offer Shaden that's probably a threat. That would be uh, be some good August fun. They should do it simply to entertain us. Like, Batman needs to step in and say, there's nothing going (laughs) on right now. You're going to make an offer sheet to Leon Dreisaitl just to to keep the league entertained. That would be fantastic. Yeah. Um, With Dreisaitl, I'm a huge fan. I think he's a fantastic player, but I don't know if the sample is big enough to... To really say, okay, he's a nine million guy, and he's gonna ask for term. He's going to get term. Yeah. I think I don't think that's something that's up in the air. But at the same time, the Oilers have their hands tied to an extent because they have McDavid, and they want to build a team around him. And here's Drysail, a perfect number two. He has a different skill set than McDavid to to some extent. Uh, can has proven he can he can more than handle the, the, the second center role in on a good team. So how do you how do you go in there into the room and, and, and kind of plead your case otherwise? So I think as much as nine will probably seem like an overpay, I wouldn't be surprised if that's what what ends up happening. Yeah, I, I mean Nine may be an overpay, but a team without Dry's Idol starts... If you're the GM, that starts to look like a very bad move because you you can't really ever go down that path of, oh, okay, if we paid him nine, then we'd be in this salary cap crunch. You're only stuck with the world where you didn't pay him nine and he left and your team is not as good and you're, you're you know, struggling to fill in that role and hoping that you draft someone who's, you know, maybe 75% of the Dry's Idol in the next few years. I mean, if they had Taylor Hall still... Maybe this is less of a, an important deal. Uh, Everly's gone for Strom. That's 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 okay. That's more of a trade off than anything. Um, but they need their number two guy, a very dynamic guy. Uh, 
locked in. So what what else can they do? What else can they they bring to the table to argue against nine million? I get. I mean, Torelli, his contracts have been hit or miss, uh, and I wonder if the McDavid factor of him supposedly leaving money on the table factors into Drysaddle. Does that add on some more to him, or does Drysaddle take the team approach, quote unquote, like McDavid did, and also leave a little bit, and then all of a sudden they have all this cap space, and um, Shirelli is is going okay. These guys are, are all in. I'm going to go find some better players. Yeah. I don't know. That's kind of an ideal world, but I I, I think the the one thing perhaps the Oilers have working for them is that it isn't going to be the last big contract that either of these players signs. So maybe you can go in and say, look, you don't have any offers elsewhere. Um, realistically, you know, you want to win a cup. We all want to win together. Take perhaps a little bit less money, knowing that in your next deal, either we or the next team that signs you can sort of make it up to you. Your next deal is going to be worth a lot of money as well. So whether it's nine million or eight million, to you, you know, you're you're losing let's say eight million dollars over the terms of your contract, but you've got a greater chance to win the cup. People will love you. No one's going to be cursing your your contract in in let's say four years' time when they when they can't sign their next draft pick. Um, well, so McDavid and Drysdale are just so young that if they leave like like McDavid did, what did he leave on the table? Six million or something? Yeah, that's nothing to him in in the grand scheme of things. I don't think anyone thinks he's gonna he's gonna fall off. He's only gonna rise in, in profile, in money, in uh, in in his performance on the ice. So, and Drysdale is similar. Where this isn't. Let's say things go south in Edmonton. He's still he's still so young that he can redeem himself elsewhere, maybe via trade or, or whatever, right? This is this is just so young in their careers to be to be signing such a large deals, yeah. at least compared to around the league. Like we're talking NHL large with NBA, MLB, NFL, this is all peanuts, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean I, I think that, you know, dries out it'll even if he falls off for a few years or, or you know, after a few years they have to move him. He's at least got a few good years of competing alongside McDavid where he will look good yes. um, simply by being in the aura of Connor <laughs> McDavid. The, the McDavid Standing in his presence. Yes, exactly. We'll, we'll turn him into a better player. So he's always he's going to have value on his next deal no matter what. He's going to be a player who will probably make more money than he otherwise would have because he's playing in Edmonton during the Connor McDavid era. So does that mean he takes less money on this deal potentially you know if there was an agreement on nine million dollars a year then you know i would think that that deal would be done by now so maybe it comes in a little bit less than that but it'll be it'll be interesting to see how the others manage their cap situation because it's going to be a a big money deal no matter what and they're going to need still a lot of players to fill in those gaps in years to come pasternak uh has some teammate impact to consider as well he's played with Marchand he's played with Bergeron uh, by all accounts uh, an up-and-coming star already sort of a fringe star underrated guy Um, what do you think what do you think uh, the Bruins and him will decide on because the latest report is that they're in a holding pattern Uh, those are exact words that was Don Sweeney the GM there Um, what do you think he's worth in today's NHL 
I, I see him as in sort of the $6 million range. I think my model had him a little bit over that. Your model has him at 6.172. Yeah, I, I could see him in sort of the 5.5 to $6 million range. I think, you know, he's he's got some leverage in that he's young and he's been very good for the Bruins, but at the same time, the Bruins, you know, they can say you've been playing with Marchand and Bergeron. Um, so, you know, maybe take a shorter term deal to prove to us that you're going to continue to do that. And maybe they kick the can down the road a little bit there. Um, or you may just get the, the sort of standard now six by six deal that uh, a lot of players or that feels like sort of a, a normal deal where, um, where you know, he signs on long term and they, they get to at least see before he hits the UFA whether he's going to be sort of the cornerstone that it looks like he might be, or if he's going to be sort of the the good high level second line player that you know you could also see him going down. I think like the the deals that Tampa has signed for Palat, for mm. Kucherov, for Johnson definitely aren't helping his case. And if you were to sort of rerun the model today with all of those deals in, it would it would knock his potential earnings down because I think that he sort of profiles as that young scoring type but not necessarily Kucherov accepted um, the, the the you know star of the team that you're you're probably building around so maybe maybe he gets in the in the five and a half range would feel right and not really feel like an overpay or an under undervalue for either side five and a half like in a short deal shortish three years uh, I, I could honestly see it going either way I, I think it depends on maybe you get a bit more money if you go in the to a longer term deal just because he's not going to get another contract then and you know you're you're sort of wagering on what's going to happen to the cap if the cap stays stagnant then your next deal probably looks a lot like your current deal unless you continue to sort of excel and rock yeah. up into the top tier of the league but if you're a player and you think you know the the cap is going to skyrocket in the next few years that you know Vegas is going to bring in all of this extra money and, and all of these new fans from down south then maybe you wager on the fact that the cap is going to go up 10% per year and what was a $5.5 million deal now looks like a $7 million deal or something in a few years' time. So. With Dreisaitl, Pasternak, maybe Athanasiu, uh, there's a couple other RFAs left that are intriguing. Would you, as a GM, offer sheet given uh, that there hasn't been one in four years? Ryan O'Reilly was the last one and it was matched. Uh, Dustin Penner, I believe, actually almost ten years ago, was the last one yeah. that uh, wasn't matched. Like this, they just don't happen. But would you, you know, in a hypothetical universe, you're a GM or a president of a team, would you seriously consider offer sheeting one of these guys? I I don't know the the Wings cap situation off the top of my head. It's pretty tight. It's, yeah, it's tight. Um, he may be Athanasio may be the one guy who if you can really put them in a bind, um, then you may look there. But at the same time, I, I think that in a lot of cases, it's pretty clear that the teams with the players who are left are going to match uh, whatever they end up getting. If, if you're already talking about $9 million for Dreisaitl, I don't think you're as a GM you're going out and, and offering him $10 million with the hopes that you, know, you tack an extra $1 million onto the Oilers cap. I think you're sort of in the position now where any offer sheet that you do is is 
isn't necessarily to get the player. It's more to put a fellow GM in a tight spot. And I think that... Um, I get why sometimes you may want to do that, but I think that these sort of inter-GM relationships, yeah. you know, when you need someone to take a bad contract off your hands, taking away, you know, 3% of the GMs in the league that you could potentially trade to probably isn't a, isn't the smartest long-term move. Um, you know, if the Oilers' offseason had gone differently, if they hadn't been able to move Everly out um, and they were a bit tighter to the cap, then maybe drive out of someone that you do look at offer sheeting, but I think they sort of, they got themselves out of a bit of a bind uh, by, by making that deal. Yeah, me and Matthew Caller of uh, ESPN Insider and uh, Minnesota Radio, uh, ESPN there, we spoke about this maybe a month ago, it was around the Vegas draft in terms of, you know, why aren't guys getting offer sheeted? And he made the argument that everything about the NHL is super competitive, you know, on the ice, off the ice with free agents. Like, why is this such a taboo subject where a GM, if he did it, he's blackballed? Like, why is it, why is the, the line drawn at offer sheets? Uh, if you really want to win a Stanley Cup, you should do whatever in your power uh, to make that happen. So he has a point, but maybe it is a line. Maybe that is where uh, the relationship gets strained and all of a sudden the guy just won't deal with you uh, that you screwed over. Um, and also the compensation is, is is pretty high for certain guys. If you're, I'm pretty sure if you're offer sheet uh, dry settle, it'll be uh, like a first rounder, uh, two seconds and a third or something like that. Like it, like it's, it's multiple high draft picks. So there's that factor. Like there's a lot of factors. I'm just surprised that one team just doesn't, that why isn't one team going rogue? <laughs> I, yeah, I, I think the offer sheet in particular, if you're a GM who loses a player on the offer sheet, that stings more because you've lost a player that you were probably counting on to be part of your team for the next six years. And generally, if they're being offer sheeted, they're you know you don't offer sheet the bottom of the roster guys. You're you're no. offer sheeting someone who is a, a top line player, so that really screws with your long term plan. You know, it, it might be something that ends up getting you fired because your team suddenly doesn't have this marquee player on their roster. So I think there's probably a bit of a hesitation to potentially put. You know, I, I think at the end of the day, a lot of these people need to be like friends because they're. They're really their their closest coworkers a lot of the time across teams, I guess. Uh, so you you don't necessarily want to put people that you interact with on a day to day basis in the position where they may end up getting fired. At the same time, there's got to be GMs out there who are in the position where they know they're they're in win now mode, and you know what's what's the harm if you if you don't offer sheet and your team's no good. You know, you might get fired anyway. So, are you really all that worried about you know one other GM on the other side of the, the league getting pissed off at you? It should be something that happens more often. I think at this point in the summer, it's a little bit tougher because teams have at least been able to build their roster around what they expect to be paying. But certainly, like earlier, and even with someone like like Vegas, who would have had the window open yeah. to to sign any RFA's that. It's a bit surprising that we don't at least hear more concrete discussions about it. Yeah, like ones that are like like so close to happening, and then yeah. whatever for whatever reason it gets pulled off the table. Um, 
Another huge factor is that if you're in a position to offer sheet, like if you if you think this is your final piece or, or whatever this player might mean to you, your cap space is probably pretty limited. So you can't go up to dry sidle and throw yeah. ten million because where where are you getting this money from, right? That's that's kind of a huge underlying uh, factor there. All right, are there any contracts that you want to talk about? Ones that that you really liked this off season or that puzzled you? Uh, puzzled me was the the Carl Alsner deal, and, and yeah. it it puzzled me in the sense that it felt like there was enough talk about how he was going to get a deal for way more than he was worth that someone in Montreal's front office or somewhere else would have stood up and said, hey, there's like, everyone's saying this guy's going to be a bad deal. Maybe he's not the guy that we should go out and, and throw four and a half million dollars about at. Because it, it feels at least like the the conversation, like you said earlier, you know you're going to get asked about a player's analytics now whenever you go into you know a press conference after a signing. Alsner does not have the, the greatest analytics in the world. People have been talking about how Alsner does not have the greatest analytics in the world. Does that give you pause if you're going to sign a player like him? I certainly don't think that Montreal's blue line is any better by adding Alsner and subtracting him from Markov. Um, so it, it'll be... It's, it's one of those ones that may end up getting masked by the fact that, you know, they've still got a few good years of Carey Price in them, hopefully... They've got Jonathan Drouin now, uh, who will ideally help, although they've lost Radulov. Um, they're, like, going into next season, they're probably the most interesting team. They've made a lot of changes, and you could argue that they're a little worse off, but not by wide margin, and they still have Carey Price. They still have, like, very strong core pieces, so it's it's going to be fascinating to see how they develop and how Bergeron's, Bergeron's move, Bergevin? Bergevin's moves, <laughs> I'm getting uh, getting all tied up here, how they kind of unfold in the in the new season because he's a guy who's not afraid to make big moves or with Alsner make uh, a relatively big splash in, in the free agent market and facelift his team. Uh, when they're not exactly rebuilding, right? They're sort of uh, retooling, I guess you could say, yeah. what they've done here. They, they've, they've been a club that has sort of, again, retooled on the fly. It feels like a few times over the past few seasons, whether it's the bringing in Radulov or the uh, Subban for, for Weber deal. Um, I, I I feel like they're sort of just like clutching on to hang on to the last few good years. I. I suspect that Bergevin knows how bad that price deal is going to look, and I don't even know if it'll be too long before it looks bad. He's one of the best goalies in the world, but he has a history of bad injury problems. And so if he falls off a cliff, even if he just can't play because those injury problems are, are recurring, um, it may not be your cap hit, but your owner is spending $10 million perhaps uh, to have Carey Price not playing, or you can't necessarily count on him so you have to plan around that. Um, I think they'll they'll probably continue to be a good team, like you said, because price will will keep them afloat in the in the short term. But um, when you've got Alsner on on you know not a short term deal, um, it'll be it'll be curious to see how quickly the, the wheels can start to fall off on on a relatively older defensive unit. Yeah, your model wasn't 
too high on him. So he signed for 4.625 per year, and you had it at 3.676. William Hall, sorry. Yeah. Um, so that's like, you know, a bit of a difference, but on a, a massive, you know, value of a difference. Yeah, it, it, the, this is the one area where I think the, the sort of difference between the model's view of, like, value and the real-world view of value sort of comes up a lot, is that with older defensemen, guys who are hitting free agency for the first time, they tend to get a lot of money just because there are not a lot of defensemen who are 28, 29, 30 and hitting free agency. Um, but they're also the type of guys who can tend to fall off the fastest if they're not the uh, good skating, puck-moving defensemen, if they're those guys who have generally relied on positioning, and when the speed starts to go, uh, their whole game starts to fall off. So the Dan Girardi, Carl Walsner, um, uh, Chris Russell, those, those sort of guys who... Um, could be exposed when they start getting older and the game continues to get faster. Yeah. They're sort of... They're the they're the ones that that lose out. Yeah, people people will pay them for what they have done recently without much thought to whether in the in the short to even medium term that's that's going to be needed. I'm glad you brought up handedness, and I know you mentioned it's part of your model, but that also plays a role. I mean, if you're right handed defenseman going into free agency like Shattenkirk was, and and don't get me wrong, Shattenkirk's a very good NHL player, one of the best power play quarterbacks in the league, but. His, his whole profile kind of uh, had a sparkling light because he was a right-handed defenseman. Uh, there's something about them and, and their rarity, at least good right-handed defensemen, uh, that especially when guys like like Mike Babcock, a very influential coach, is like adamant on having you know a right-handed defenseman out there at all times. Uh, I just think it's, it's at such a premium now that those guys get overpaid. But at the same time, I... I you know, good for them because they're they're kind of filling a niche and, and they're cashing in. Well, the, the interesting thing to me is that everyone seems to acknowledge now, and even the model the model knows that right-handed <laughs> defensemen are more well, valuable than left-handed. Yeah, <laughs> yay! I didn't screw that part up. Uh, everyone knows that right-handed defensemen are more valuable than left-handed defensemen, but it doesn't seem like there's this real effort to find left-handed defensemen who can play the right side. I did a, a study a while back that looked at. Um, whether it was actually true that left-handed defensemen uh, performed worse on their offside, and they, they do tend to, they get a lower uh, Corsi percentage. I think their either goals for percentage drops a little bit when you've got a left-left pairing versus a left-right pairing. Uh, but at the same time, if you're giving up like a clearly better player in order to keep someone on their uh, on their correct side, I think that perhaps you start to make suboptimal decisions sense that you you forget that the difference is there but it's also a small difference and so if the difference between two players is two percent two and a half percent you want to go with the better players rather than than keeping them on their correct side yeah sometimes players or player types or ages or whatever characteristic gets overvalued and then all of a sudden you know the market eventually corrects itself but i think it takes a few years for gms and, and agents to get on the same page Oh yeah, well, it's like you said, when you get the most influential coach in the league, uh, insisting on 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 a certain tactic, and, and like you said, there's been evidence shown on the analytical side, on the eye test. You can tell, like it's it's yeah. anyone who's played hockey knows that when you're on your wrong side, 
on on the defensive end, you're not helping the team as much as you could on the other side. Like it's very intuitive, it's very obvious. And then when you have the actual evidence to back it up, it's like, okay, well maybe maybe this is pretty important. You know, on, on the offensive end, you know, if you're on your wrong side, you have you have the one time option. That's that's a whole different story. But if you're trying to break out of your own end, even as a forward on your wrong wing, it can be awkward receiving a pass on your backhand or or whatever. And then with defensemen, it's a whole other yeah, I, I think that's maybe one of the areas where as we start to get better like tracking data that comes in, we'll really start to see the value of that because you could start to look at, you know, how often does a defenseman on their offside uh, make a clean breakout pass, something like that. Are forwards missing those breakout passes and and you know, leading to extended zone time in their own end because they're trying to receive a pass on their back end and they're they're not necessarily getting it cleanly or they're they're um, they're not able to protect the puck because they're they're off correctly um so if we get better data on that we can start to figure out you know maybe it doesn't matter quite as much when you're starting in the offensive zone if you're on your offside whereas on the defensive zone you really want to make sure you've got a, a opposite pair out there um but we don't have that data the nhl may have it one day yeah the we, very secretive nhl and yeah. <laughs> oh i wish we had the data that Batman's just just stepped in his office going through X Y coordinates yeah. for the puck all, I, I all think, day. I think like in an alternate universe, Batman's like the, the the cream of the crop in terms of analytics, and he's he's actually just holding it hostage. He's waiting for for the perfect time to unleash it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> After the next lockout, this will be the marketing factor coming. There you go. Yeah, Come yeah. see our new numbers and our tracking and yeah, how it's going to look great on broadcast. This is how they will get the fans back to the game. He's saving it. I like the I like the series. More conspiracy than anything, but I like it. Yeah, maybe that's that's my, my second specialty after analytics is conspiracy theories. <laughs> All right, Matt, thanks for coming. What's the name of your model? Did you give it, like, a pet name? I didn't give it a pet name. I I, I, I really should have, but I don't, I don't have anything clever. Like, Mike McCready always comes up with the... Yeah, like a, Cordelia? Like, yeah. I don't know if that has to do with the Tragically Hip song or not, but... Oh, maybe, actually. But I, never, I never asked. Yeah, he does seem to have some... Some unique names, so yeah. I think I think, or if you just want to call it like Kane's model. We'll I guess call it Kane's fine. model for now until I come up with something better. And are you generally pleased with its performance this summer? From looking at the spreadsheet, comparing your predicted contract and money uh, to the to the real money that came in, I think for the most part it was pretty pretty close. Yeah, I'm I'm happy with the with how it's done. I think there's a few obvious areas for improvement. But some of the guys at the top end, you know, like uh, Johansson and uh, and Kuznetsov obviously came in low. So I think there's some effort to be done there to sort of identify those franchise cornerstones who you're building around. Buyouts were, were pretty bad, with the exception of Dan Girardi. And then like really old guys tended to go, you know, lower or higher. Areas there, but those are sort of small areas that you might even expect just because there's less sample to build the model off of. It's not going to be perfect, and let's face it, next year they're probably just going to do the opposite of what you what yeah, you exactly. did this summer, and then you're back to the drawing board again. It's it's what makes it fun is that it's kind of, it's a constantly moving target that you've uh, you've got to keep uh, recalibrating and, and figuring out what's important to you. So if people want to read your stuff on hockey graphs or just follow. Uh, your work in general, I guess Twitter might be the best way to find you. Twitter's the best way at Kane underscore Matt C A N E, um, and then on hockeygraphs.com, hockey-graphs.com. Yeah, dash. I don't, I don't go to the website. Often. I think if you put both in, it, it it shows up. But I, 
it, I think it's officially dash. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to make it easy for people. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Uh, so you can find me there, or uh, if you have any questions about the model, shoot me a note on Twitter, and uh, and I'll be happy to respond. All right. Well, safe travels home. Hopefully, you don't get fined or arrested or whatever uh, the PTC wants to do to you, but. It, I, I, I'm a little worried that my face is on like a wanted poster now outside of Sherburn Station. You never know. Yeah. All right. Thanks again. Awesome. Thanks.